the Earth move around the Sun, or is it uh, the other way around? Copernicus worked out the right answer long before Galileo was even born, as did the best Greek mathematicians thousands of years earlier. Yet somehow Galileo has ended up with much of the credit. Here's a quote from the Cambridge Companion to Galileo. If one wonders why Copernican theory, which had almost no adherence at the beginning of the 17th century, had pretty much swept the field by the middle of the century, the answer is, above all, Galileo's dialogue. And here's another quote from the very short introduction to Copernicus. Uh, Galileo wrote a book that won the war and made belief in a moving earth intellectually respectable. It's the end of that quote. So, this standard story from this mainstream scholarship, it is possibly right in a very limited sense, Maybe, indeed, the, the ignorant masses that needed a book like Galileo's to kind of dumb it down for them before they could finally come to their senses about the, uh, the structure of the solar system. However, mathematically competent people were already convinced long before. They had no use for Galileo telling them the, the ABCs about this. When Copernicus made the Earth go around the sun, he confidently declared that, I have no doubt that talented and learned mathematicians will agree with me. Those were his own words, and he was right. In 1600, long before Galileo has published a single word on this matter, there were already at least 10 committed Copernicans, besides Copernicus himself. Uh, the historian Westman, he lists them as follows. There's Diggis and Harriet in England, Giordano Bruno and Galileo in Italy, Diego de Zuniga in Spain, Simon Stevin in the Low Countries, and in Germany, the largest group, Reticus, Meslin, Rothmann, and Kepler. So that's 11 in total, uh, 11 believers in the new astronomy. And this is what the Cambridge Companion calls almost no adherence in the quotation above. Well, what do you expect? How many talented and learned mathematicians do you think there were in this pest-ridden, bloodletting, witch-burning Europe of 1600? And how many of those concerned themselves with the Copernican question, formed an opinion about it, even though that was a philosophical question beyond the scope of the official computational task of the astronomer, and among those in turn, how many were prepared to declare allegiance to a flagrantly heretical opinion in an age where the religious thought police routinely employed vicious torture and uh, burnt dissenters alive, including, in fact, one guy on that very list uh, that I just read, uh, Giordano Bruno, who was burnt at the stake by the authorities as punishment for his heretical views, which included heliocentrism, although it is unclear what weight that carried exactly in relation to his other thought crimes. But so, given this context, I think that 11 avowed Copernicans in 1600 is really quite a crowd. In, but in fact, consider Galileo's own assessment of the situation in 1597. I quote him here, I have preferred not to publish, intimidated by the fortune of our teacher Copernicus, who, though he will be of immortal fame to some, yet by an infinite number he is laughed at and rejected, for such is the multitude of fools. Those are Galileo's words. And this confirms that the social pressures to avoid the issue were indeed very real, if enough to intimidate Galileo in his own words, and surely many others as well. And more importantly, Galileo actually is making my main point for me in this quotation. Even at this very early stage, 15... Uh, 97, is long before Galileo has published a single word on this, well before the invention of the telescope. Everyone with half a brain has rejected the old astronomy already. By Galileo's own reckoning, there were only fools 
left to convince. And I say that on this point he is exactly right. We just have to take his own word for it. And furthermore, there were doubtless many more uh, closet Copernicans, so to speak, who figured uh, don't ask, don't tell is the best policy to avoid needless conflicts with the intolerant. Uh, for instance, uh, one scholar has observed that uh, Harriet had a number of followers in England who were enthusiastic believers in heliocentrism, but the local political and intellectual milieu forced them into what we can term um, preventive self-censorship. This is what uh, one historian has pointed out. And another example is uh, Mersenne in France. He didn't go, doesn't go on the official list of Copernicans above either, because as one historian puts it, at no time during his life did he find any proof so overwhelming that he felt like challenging the church on the matter. And, uh, that this is despite the fact that he was one of the most enthusiastic readers of Galileo's dialogue, who praised Galileo and so on. So, so Mersenne remained uncommitted for political reasons, it would seem. Here's another indication that many were silently receptive to Copernicanism, in secret, so to speak. Namely, most of the astronomers of the 16th century onwards owned a copy of uh, Copernicus' book, and many of them wrote extensive notes in the margin. This was the habit at the time. Books were printed with enormous margins because everyone was expected to make detailed notes as they, as they read them. And indeed they did. This is what uh, serious mathematical astronomers were doing. They were reading Copernicus, taking copious notes in the margins. Uh, Owen Gingrich he conducted a uh, thorough census of all the surviving copies of uh, Copernicus's book. He looked at all the uh, marginalia that uh, this large group of serious, competent readers of Copernicus's book had written in, the, in their copies. And that is a group that is uh, far larger than those 11 people I mentioned before. Um, some of them were presumably secretly convinced that Copernicus was right. Well, they just didn't bother saying it because they didn't want to get into trouble. Um, others, uh, they studied the work because they saw it as their duty to keep up with the, the best technical mathematical astronomy of the day, whether they agreed with it or not. Either way, these people took meticulous notes as they painstakingly worked through this uh, long and uh, technical treatise. But this group did not include Galileo. Galileo's the dilettantism is uh, so blatant and shameless that Gingerish could hardly believe his eyes. This scholar uh, Gingerish, who I mentioned, uh, here's what he says. I had long supposed that Galileo was not the sort of astronomer who would have read Copernicus' book to the very end. Still, when I saw the copy in Florence... My reaction was one of skepticism that it was actually Galileo's copy, since there were so few annotations in it. This copy had no technical marginalia, in fact, no penned evidence that Galileo had actually read any substantial part of it. Eventually, I realized that my skepticism was unfounded and that it really was Galileo's copy. There is no need for surprise, of course. Galileo was a poor mathematician. He had neither the patience nor the ability to understand the serious mathematical astronomy, let alone make any contribution to it. Well, let's have a look at what some of those more serious mathematical astronomers were up to. For example, Tycho Brahe, the Danish astronomer in the generation before Galileo. He also considered the question of whether it is the Earth or the Sun that moves, and he came up with a creative answer that is neither that of Ptolemy nor that of Copernicus. 
He saw the strengths in the Copernican system, but he was worried about its drawbacks. Most importantly, the problem of uh, parallax, which we discussed before. Now, if the Earth moves in a big circle, that would imply that uh, we are looking at the heavens from different points of view in the course of a year. This should be detectable when we study the positions of the stars. The angles between them should uh, shrink and grow as we move around the Sun because their distance from any particular star configuration uh, would change radically in the course of a year. But uh, this does not happen. The sky is immutable. As far as the 17th century astronomers could detect, the, the constellations all look exactly the same throughout the year, just as if we had never moved an inch. Tycho Brahe, he was the most exacting astronomical observer in, in the pre-telescopic era, and even he, with his very advanced and precise observations, could find no such uh, parallactic effect, no difference across the course of the year. So, to maintain the Earth's motion in spite of this, it is therefore necessary to postulate, as Copernicus indeed does, that the fixed stars are at an immense height away. That is to say, the diameter of the Earth's orbit is so small in relation to this astronomical distance to the stars that our feeble little motion around the Sun is all but uh, tantamount to standing still. This is why no parallax can be detected. Now, as we know today, this is indeed a correct explanation. This is why they couldn't detect any parallax. However, in the 16th century, it didn't sound too convincing, this explanation. Tycho Brahe was one of the skeptics. He calculated that if Copernicus was right, uh, the stars would have to be at least 700 times uh, further away than, than Saturn, the outermost planet. Now, the universe would not have been designed with so much wasted space, uh, Tycho reasoned. So Tycho therefore devised a system of his own. In this system, the Earth remained the center of the universe, while the planets orbit the Sun. So it's a hybrid of Ptolemy and Copernicus, a halfway house that takes the best of both worlds. This solves the problem of parallax right away, because since the Earth is not moving, there shouldn't be any parallax, so but that's that problem solved. You can put the sphere of the fixed stars just beyond Saturn, like Ptolemy did. This is how people used to view the, the stars. It's a bunch of specks of shiny glitter glued onto the inside of a big uh, ball. Since we can't judge uh, depth or distance of heavenly objects by eye anyway, we might as well just imagine everything uh, taking place on a single surface like that, all the all stars belonging to a single uh, sphere. Uh, if, if you adopt the cosmology of Ptolemy or Tycho, you can imagine this sphere as a natural container of the solar system. Everything just fits snugly inside it. Every bit of space has a purpose. Not so in Copernicus' universe. If there is uh, this glitter sphere of stars at all, it must be enormous, which is just uh, grotesque, isn't it? It's as if somebody would make a huge clock face, like Big Ben style, many meters across, but then they put uh, tiny wristwatch arms in the middle that are just a centimeter long. It's absurd. The, the whole uh, spectacle is uh, repulsive. So that's a point for Tycho for avoiding that problem, for not making such a ludicrous lack of uh, sense and balance in the, the universe. But, uh, okay, what about the strengths of the Copernican system? We discussed this before. The advantages, they have to do with explanatory simplicity. 
Copernican, the Copernican system explains the retrograde motion of the outer planets, the bounded elongation of the inner planets. In fact, so does Tycho's system. In fact, Tycho's system is equivalent to the Copernican one as far as the relative positions of the heavenly bodies are concerned. Tycho and Copernicus describe the same uh, planetary motions, uh, only they choose a different reference point uh, in, in terms of which to describe them. Kepler illustrates the points with uh, an analogy. The same circle can be traced on a piece of paper by either rotating the pen arm of a compass around a fixed leg, or by keeping the compass itself fixed and instead rotating the paper underneath it. So in this illustrate this illustrates the point that the Copernican and Tychonic systems are by necessity on equal footing as far as any arguments regarding the relative positions of the planets, including those arguments based on explanatory simplicity that I mentioned. So although Tycho's system, it kind of feels weirder, so to speak, psychologically, uh, there is no denying that actually, for all those purposes, it is strictly equivalent to heliocentrism, but that this is just a geometrical fact of kind of a, a change of coordinate system, so to speak, for describing the very same phenomenon from a different point of view. So it's possible, one might say, well, the Tychonic system, it is less physically plausible, though, than that of Ptolemy or Copernicus. And indeed, uh, the traditional conceptions had it that uh, the planets were enclosed in translucent crystalline spheres, like the layers of an onion. We discussed this before, why that made sense. And indeed, the Ptolemaic and Copernican system are basically compatible with this uh, kind of onion view of the universe. And uh, now the Tychonic si system is not so. The planets are cr crossing each other's orbs uh, all over the place because of the, uh, that's the geometrical nature of that model. However, Tycho had some good counter-arguments to this. He studied carefully the paths of comets, and he proved that they evidently passes through these alleged crystalline spheres with ease. Furthermore, he pointed out that these alleged spheres, they do not refract light, as glass and other materials have been known to do since antiquity. So Tycho, he had some decent arguments in defense of his uh, system, even in the domain of physics, and all in all, Tycho's system was a serious scientific theory with good arguments to its credits. And this is another reason why our head count of Copernicus above is misleading. The number of people who rejected the Ptolemaic system were certainly greater than the number of outright Copernicans. The middle road uh, put forward by Tycho was by no means blind conservatism. It was a viable system based on the latest mathematical astronomy. Galileo, however, he liked to pretend otherwise. The full title of his famous book reads Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, Ptolemaic and Copernican. Well, that certainly made Galileo's life a lot easier. Very convenient for him to frame his this fictional debate with fictional opponents in those antiquated terms. That way he could battle these 2,000-year-old ideas instead of having to engage with the latest mathematical astronomers, such as the work of Tycho Brahe more serious and mathematically competent people, they had a very different view of which were the two chief world systems. Around 1600, long before Galileo enters the fray, Kepler considers it obvious that the Ptolemaic system is obsolete. This is Kepler writing before uh, Galileo's works. I quote, Today, there is practically no one who would doubt what is common to the Copernican and 
Tychonic hypothesis, namely that the sun is at the center of the motions of the five planets and that this is the way things are in the heavens themselves. Though in the meantime, there is doubt from all sides about the motion or stability of the sun. Later, uh, the telescope uh, has brought new evidence and not much has changed. Kepler uh, is a bit more assured that, as he says, today it is absolutely certain among all astronomers that all the planets revolve around the sun. That is, Kepler now is writing that this quote is from 1619, is after the telescope. But even then, the battle between Copernicus and Tycho remained uh, far from settled. As Kepler says, either of those two hypotheses are today publicly accepted as most true, and the Ptolemaic one as outmoded. This is still uh, 20 years before Galileo's dialogue, and the question is already settled against the Ptolemaic system, according to Kepler. Here, here's what uh, Kepler adds regarding how to decide between Copernicus and Tycho. The theologians may decide which of these two hypotheses, that of Copernicus or that of Brahe, uh, should henceforth be regarded as valid. For the old Ptolemaic one is surely wrong. These are Kepler's words. Again, this is written more than a decade before Galileo's famous book that dishonestly pretends that the Ptolemaic view is still one of the two sheep world systems. And just as Kepler says, this was not just uh, Kepler's opinion. In fact, historians who study much more minor figures, they have also concluded that, indeed, the Ptolemaic system already had been set aside, at least uh, among mathematical astronomers. This is well before Galileo wrote his dialogue, of course, once again. But Galileo, in his great book, like a schoolyard bully, secretly too scared to pick on someone his own size, he preferred to pretend that the old Ptolemaic system was still uh, the enemy of the day. To be sure, you can say in his defense, there were still a multitude of fools left to convince, to use Galileo's phrase. And perhaps indeed Galileo did so more effectively than anybody else. But that proves at most that Galileo should be praised as a popularizer, not as a scientist. To mathematically competent astronomers, he was beating a dead horse. Some scholars have made too much of the above arguments in favor of the Tychonic system. However, they have concluded that it is fair to say that contrary to the standard view, science backed geocentrism. That's a quote from Christopher Granny's book, Recent Scholarship. Indeed, if you take the petty works of Galileo and his immediate opponents to be the extent of science, then this conclusion does make some sense. However, the conclusion is false if you include genuinely talented scientists like Kepler, unlike Galileo, Kepler dared to take on the Tychonic system head-on, and he gave a long list of compelling arguments against it. So, Tycho's system is equivalent to the Copernican one, in terms of the relative position of the planets, but that Copernicus is better able than Brahe to deal with celestial physics is proven in many ways, says Kepler, and he's right. He has a range of physics arguments, including the one that I discussed before about uh, the implausibility of a heavier body orbiting a lighter one. A very excellent argument. Let's consider in some more detail the relation between Kepler and Galileo. Kepler was the best mathematical astronomer in Galileo's day. They were contemporaries. Kepler, in fact, was seven years younger than Galileo. What did they think of each other? Uh, what were their uh, relationship? Actually, certainly not as substantive as one might expect. As one historian puts it, 
One wonders why these two great men, who were both present and actual participants at the very birth of some of the most world-shaking scientific events, and who apparently were very much in accord in their astronomical views, one wonders why they did not engage in a more ongoing correspondence over these years. And of that quote, this is a puzzle and a paradox, if one accepts the standard view of Galileo, of course, as a great mind. Of course, it becomes perfectly understandable as soon as one realizes that Kepler, who was a brilliant mathematician, had very little to learn from a dilettante such as Galileo. Well, the correspondence between these two people, Galileo and Kepler, began in 1597. Kepler was then a lowly high school teacher of mathematics, a fledgling author. Kepler vainly implored Galileo, the established university professor, to give him the benefit of a judgment of his first major work, the Mysterium Cosmographicum. Galileo replied briefly, declaring himself in agreement with the Copernican standpoint of Kepler's book. And also this is where he gives that statement that I already quoted, that where Galileo says, I have preferred not to publish, intimidated by the fortune of our teacher Copernicus, who, though he will be of immortal fame to some, is yet by an infinite number laughed at and rejected, for such is the multitude of fools. Uh, Kepler, in his reply, he says, well, he's happy to hear that Galileo, like so many learned mathematicians, has joined in supporting the Copernican heresy, as Kepler calls it. And, and those are Kepler's uh, words, like so many learned mathematicians. Galileo is late to the party, you see. So many learned mathematicians got there before him. This is what Kepler himself is saying. And Kepler goes on to say, in reply to Galileo's admission of being intimidated by his opponents, that uh, Galileo should really grow a backbone. Here's what uh, Kepler says. For it is not only you Italians who do not believe that they move unless they feel it, but we in Germany too in no way make ourselves popular with this idea. Kepler urges Galileo to focus on compelling mathematics instead of on the number of fools. Not many good mathematicians in Europe will want to differ from us. Such is the power of truth. This is what Kepler is saying, a much more positive message than Galileo's uh, lament regarding the number of fools. Well, this is very typical and illustrative of the outlooks of Kepler and, and, and Galileo. Galileo has his attention turned to the multitude of fools, as those are his words, the uneducated masses and their naive beliefs. From that point of view, fighting for heliocentrism is a huge uphill battle. Kepler, on the other hand, is more concerned with what other mathematicians think, what uh, intelligent people who study the matter in a serious way believe about the motion of the Earth. From that point of view, there is every reason to be very optimistic, as Kepler says, because all competent people had rejected Ptolemy's astronomy already. At this point, Kepler naively mistook Galileo for a serious uh, scientific interlocutor. In connection with their discussion of Copernicanism, Kepler noted the importance of parallax, and he asked Galileo if he would help him with uh, some observations regarding this. So he added detailed instructions regarding the exact nature and timing of the required measurements to settle this matter of, of the parallax. Kepler also sent along in the same, at the same time additional copies of his book, as Galileo had requested, and asked only for a long letter of uh, response as payment. Uh, so instead of monetary uh, compensation, he just wanted uh, a serious uh, intellectual engagement uh, with uh, with the text, which, however, was never forthcoming. 
Galileo stopped replying, presumably because this kind of actual substantive mathematical astronomy was beyond his abilities. Kepler was indeed not the only scientific correspondence that Galileo shrunk away from. He also neglected to reply to all three letters that he received from Mersenne, for example, offering only the rather limp excuse that he found Mersenne's handwriting too hard to read. Well, it seems he had a point. Uh, others complained similarly of Mersenne's letter that his hand is an Arabic character to me, as uh, Cavendish uh, said. Nevertheless, those are further instances of Galileo failing to reply to a serious scientific interlocutor. The tables were turned in 1610. While Galileo had not seen the greatness in Kepler's book, uh, more mathematically competent people had. Consequently, Kepler had succeeded to Cobrae as the imperial mathematician of the self-declared Holy Roman Emperor in Prague. In that capacity, Kepler's help was sorely needed by Galileo in 1610, when his momentous telescopic discoveries were being received on all sides with skepticism and hostility. Now, to Kepler's credit, he swallowed his justifiable resentment and ungrudgingly gave Galileo the authoritative support he could find nowhere else. In spite of Galileo's earlier silence, uh, after his own request in uh, 1597, Kepler quickly and enthusiastically responded uh, to Galileo's findings within 11 days. Galileo surely had this in mind when, in reply, he praised Kepler for your uprightness and loftiness of mind. You were the first one, and practically the only one, to have complete faith in my assertions regarding the telescopic discoveries, says Galileo with gratitude. And Kepler's support was indeed crucial. Galileo keenly flaunted it to his advantage uh, when promoting his work to others. Galileo, he did not take the occasion of this correspondence to revive the scientific discussion or to comment on Kepler's brilliant new book, The Astronomia Nova of 1609, which proved the law of ellipsis, among other things. Instead, Galileo only wanted to make fun of dumb philosophers. Here's what he says in his letter to Kepler. Oh, my dear Kepler... How I wish that we could have one hearty life together. Here at Padua is the principal uh, professor of philosophy whom I have repeatedly and urgently uh, requested to look at the moon and the planets through my glass, which he refuses to do. Why are you not here? What shouts of laughter we should have had at this glorious folly. This is the end of the quote from, from Galileo. Well, Kepler wasn't there because he was too busy doing real science. He ignored idiotic philosophers, as all mathematically competent people had done for thousands of years. Galileo, however, had nothing better to do than to sit around and laugh at idiots. Because he was not a serious scientist himself, he could not contribute to the mathematical astronomy, and this is why he has to be so preoccupied with these professors of philosophy, making fun of them, just as he says in this letter. Uh, to him, uh, the most desirable application of science is a clever put-down and the last laugh in one of these confrontations with uh, his enemies in the Department of Philosophy. Kepler eventually grew wary of Galileo's dilettantism, actually, when uh, in later years he found himself having to correct uh, Galileo's errors. He justifiably took a, quite a patronizing tone uh, let me read to you here a quote from Kepler from the year 1625. Galileo rejects Tycho's arguments that there are no celestial orbs with uh, definitive surfaces, 
because there are no refractions of the stars. Rays reach the Earth perpendicular to the spheres, says Galileo, and perpendicular rays are not refracted. But, oh, Galileo, if there are orbs, it is necessary that they be eccentric. Therefore, no rays perpendicular to the spheres reach the Earth except at apogee and perigee. Hence, uh, Tycho's argument is a strong one if you are willing to listen. This is the end of this quote uh, from Kepler, where he's really growing sick and tired of, of Galileo's misrepresentations, isn't he? Galileo evidently just ignored all the mathematical details as usual and instead only addressed this simplistic straw man version of Tycho's actual argument. It's just the way it always goes uh, with Galileo, and by now Kepler has realized as much, which is why he's using this strong terms of disapproval. Here's another example of the same thing. Again, Kepler has lost patience with Galileo's shameless and self-serving rhetoric, and he sets the record straight as follows. This is a long quote uh, from Kepler here. Galileo denies that the Ptolemaic hypothesis could be refuted by Tycho Copernicus or others, and says that it was refuted only by Galileo himself through the use of the telescope for observation of the variation of the disks of Mars and Venus. Nothing is more valuable than that observation of yours, Galileo. Nothing is more advantageous for the advancement of astronomy. Yet, with your indulgence, if I may state what I believe, it seems to me that you would be well advised to collect those thoughts of yours that go wandering from the course of reason. This observation of yours does not refute the very distinguished system of Ptolemy, nor add to it. Indeed, this observation of yours refutes not the Ptolemaic system, but rather, I say, it refutes the traditions of the Ptolemaics regarding the least differences of planetary diameters. Your own observation of the disks confirms the proportion for the eccentric to the epicycle in Ptolemy as it does the orbit of the Sun in Tycho or of the Orbis Magnus in Copernicus. So this is the end of this quotation from Kepler. So the point is that even though Kepler favors uh, the Copernican conclusion, just like Galileo does. He, unlike Galileo, is honest with the evidence. He is honest when the evidence is consistent with either of these hypotheses. So for example, that of Tycho, he does not pretend otherwise. Kepler thinks it is the obligation of the scientists to consider alternative hypotheses seriously, to engage with them on their own terms instead of opportunistically twisting everything to confirm one's uh, preferred conclusion. In both of these cases that I quoted, Kepler exposes Galileo's uh, true colors. Galileo doesn't treat the matter as a serious mathematical astronomer, but rather as a superficial and unscrupulous rhetorician. Kepler is quite right to scold him, as indeed he does. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say about the state of astronomy before the telescope. So next time, the mysterious optical tube that enables you to see faraway objects uh, up close. Is that going to be Galileo's great uh, triumph? Hardly, but we will get to that next time, won't we? Okay, thank you.